0: everyone and welcome back to Motherkind the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more confidence clarity and self awareness thanks to each and every one of you that come back every week to listen learn and feel inspired and if you love the podcast can you do me a favor and hit subscribe it really does help so if i say the word manifesting to you what do you think maybe you think about only thinking positive thoughts, or maybe your mind turns to The Secret, you know, that best-selling book in the 80s. Well, my guest this week says that it's way more than that. Manifesting is actually about believing deep down that you deserve what you want, that you are allowed to want what you want, and you are worthy of going for it. So whether you want to feel more love for yourself Whether you want a career that you love and works around family life, maybe you want more fun or maybe you want to feel real joy and peace more often. Roxy Nafusi is a self-development coach, and manifesting expert, and the author of the bestseller Manifest. You know that little orange book that you would have seen all over social media. It's been an absolute sensation. She is also mother to her three-year-old little boy. In this episode, she shares with us how she turned her life around using manifesting. She went from parties, drugs, and recklessness to now living her dream life. She shares how motherhood was the catalyst she needed to heal from decades of self-loading to where she is today, feeling deeply in love with both life and herself. In this episode, she shares how she did it. It is deeply inspirational. I hope you love it. Here it is. Roxy, welcome to the podcast. I'm genuinely buzzing to chat to you. Oh, thank you so much. I've got about 30 questions. We're not going to get through them all. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful. When I've been sort of reading your book and looking at your work, it seems to me that your transformation... I would call it, you would probably say manifesting journey is deeply intertwined with your journey of motherhood.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: I was wondering if you could tell us about that because lots of people have the opposite experience when they become mothers and lose themselves and fall you know, further away from where they want to be. You seem like you've had the opposite where motherhood has ignited you into you know, this amazing service that you're offering in the world and who you really are. So tell us about that.
1: Well, I haven't thought about that for ages and you're so right. I think for me, when I think about when my career journey began and when my transformation began, it really was the day Wolfie was born. So whenever anyone asks me, how long have you been doing this? I always know the answer because I began when Wolfie was born. So it was three years. I think the reason for that was, was that for me, I had fallen pregnant with Wade but after knowing Wade only a very short amount of time. And so it was a real surprise. And it was definitely not something I felt at all ready for. And of course, I felt so fortunate to be pregnant because I know what a struggle it is for so many. And I never want to feel like I sound ungrateful in any way. But I was still addicted to cocaine and alcohol. And I was smoking 25 cigarettes a day. And I was in no way ready to be a mum. You know, and I was also having a baby with someone that I really hardly knew. And even though we'd fall in love really quickly, I didn't know him. Neither of us had any money. I had no career. He was an actor, which is obviously incredibly unstable and not thriving at the time. So it was really scary. But even so, I never for a second questioned if I would have Wolf or not. I knew that with absolute certainty, which was, I think, why I was so terrified when I found out because I knew that my life was about to change beyond recognition, but I didn't know how at that point. And when I then fell pregnant and went through my pregnancy, I developed very, very severe prenatal depression. I gave up straight away everything, but I turned that into an addiction to food, I guess. I just binge eat, ate for the entire pregnancy and gained 30 kilos. And I was in such a bad depression. It was the darkest time of my life mentally. I felt like every day was a struggle to be alive. But what kept me going was that I had decided that when I had this baby, I would become the best version of myself that existed and that I would never allow myself to feel that kind of level of inner pain again. And so I think that the pain of the pregnancy was almost like such a strong driving force for me and made me so determined to turn my life around. You know, of course, a part of me did worry if my depression would affect Wolfie when he was born. And I'm so pleased to say that it's absolutely not because he is the most joyous, sweetest, calmest child I've ever come across. We have such a special bond and I think that, you know, for me, it wasn't that he was born and it was love at first sight because I didn't have any love for myself at that point. So as I developed self-love, I was also developing my love for him. And so I think that we really grew together. And Wolf, I say, is truly my lucky charm. Like everything good in my life has happened since he has been here. He's like my guardian angel, my soulmate. And I think that going back to your question in terms of how my career I suppose and my development of myself has begun since becoming a mother I think part of that is because is because I hadn't planned to become a mother. For me it wasn't so much that I had this idea in my head that I wanted to be a mom and then that was something I was like driving towards. if that makes sense it was more that okay I was going to be a mother but that was not all I wanted to be. I still needed to find out who I was. If I was to just not explore myself and transform, I didn't feel I would be able to even be the mother that I wanted to be. But I also knew that I wasn't done yet. I hadn't experienced joy in my life yet. So I still had to work really hard to make that for myself. It's such a powerful story and you know i know quite
0: a lot about addiction and and it would make total sense wouldn't it that you would put down the drugs and alcohol and need almost to replace that addiction with something like that just makes sense so when you're in those early days and you you know you made this really powerful decision like i want to become a mother and experience joy for the first time that gave me goosebumps it's really beautiful where did you start i'm guessing you had to unpack a lot about what was behind that addiction that work can feel I've done it myself it can feel really heavy for me it can feel like you're wading through layers of like old beliefs past traumas luckily I did that work before I was a mother I can't imagine doing that as a new mum with a little baby was that your experience how did you do that healing work and step into new motherhood at the same time
1: I don't really know how I did it I think that being around children in general, it tests your patience. It makes you question a lot about yourself. It reminds you of the importance of being present, of being mindful, of their innocence, of their wonder. And I think that on some levels, seeing Wolfie, and I think this is Probably a common experience for a lot of people that when you see your children, it reminds you a lot about your childhood. And in that, quite a lot of old traumas come to light. Like I think about things that happened to me as a child or things that I went through. And I think, oh my gosh, if that was happening to Wolfie now, what would I say to him? How would I parent him? How would I support him? And then how can I offer that to myself now, to my inner child? And inner child work is such an integral part of reparenting yourself and healing. I think it's in part that, but also, you know, there is space. When you are dedicated to anything, you will find the time for it. I was dedicated to my healing journey and feeling better. And so I made the time to both be a mother and heal and form a career and do all the things that I wanted to do. I think we all can do it all. That's been my experience as well.
0: People often say to me like, how do you find the time? I'm like, I don't watch much TV. Like, that's the truth of it. Yeah, I have no social life. <laughs> I, have no, I have no friends left and I don't have a clue what's going on on TV because I'm just like parenting or working healing. <laughs> so true, isn't it? You talked about in a child's work, and I definitely want to dive into that because that is such a core part of what you talk about with manifesting. And I want to start bringing in this word, because I guess that's what people know you for now. You've had this like amazing bestseller. So what is manifesting to you? Because some people might be surprised to hear the word manifesting and inner child together, because we've been sort of sold this watered down version of manifesting that it's about think it and then it's yours. And that is just a load of rubbish, isn't it really? So what is manifesting really?
1: So manifesting is kind of using the power of your mind to change and create the reality you experience, but it really comes down at its core to your belief system and your beliefs about what you deserve. And so self-love and self-worth are these kind of like driving forces behind manifesting. Step two of my seven steps to manifesting is remove fear and doubt. And fear and doubt is the culmination of all our insecurities, our low self-worth, our doubts, whatever. And they've been ingrained in us since we were a child. And we behave and we perceive the world based on our belief system. So if we don't believe we're worthy of abundance, happiness, true love, then we won't attract it into our lives. And so how do we start to change our beliefs? How do we start to feel and believe that we are worthy of having these things, of having everything that we want, of having joy in our life and contentment and fulfillment and love? A big part of changing your belief system is, you know, on one hand, it's about reprogramming your subconscious. And on the other hand, it's about healing your trauma and all those blockages that requires you to process what you've been through and heal that pain through reparenting, through giving yourself what your inner child needed, which is safety and validation and the need to feel seen and heard. I think it's a part of my healing journey that actually I didn't come to in the beginning. I didn't realize its importance. I was using a lot of the tools I could use to help me change my perspective, change way I was speaking to myself. But actually it took me a while to understand that actually going back was something that could not be ignored. I couldn't keep progressing on my manifesting journey if I wasn't going to really let go of what was holding me back and what is holding all of us back is our trauma and all of us have experienced trauma to differing kind of levels and extremities but we all have experienced them
0: i think that's fine isn't it like i was exactly the same when i started off my healing journey i was doing a lot of spiritual bypassing like that's cool i feel like that's almost like i had to create that level of safety in myself to then even want to go back and explore those past things but for sure i feel like they're just the most important thing we can ever do is just unpack. And it doesn't even need to be big or heavy unless there are really big, dark, heavy things, which of course there are for some people. And then I think they need to get professional support around that. But sometimes it can be done with a lightness and with an ease. And sometimes with like a humor, like sometimes I find it quite funny how cyclical my beliefs are and how they keep coming back and back and back and back. What did you find with some of your core adaptations, I would call it, you would call it beliefs from childhood that you needed to change in order to, as you say, go on to that next level of your life?
1: I really truly believed that I was unworthy and that I was a burden to everybody and that I didn't fit in. I wasn't wanted. I wasn't liked. I wasn't loved. I wasn't accepted and I was not enough. And that the only way somebody would be in my presence or like me was if I could offer them something that was more than me, whether it was offering them men sex or people advice, or like when I was at school, my earliest memories was that my mom would always give me like sweets and chocolate. And I would think that to make friends, I had to give all of that away because the only way anybody would talk to me because I was this outsider. And so it was that, To receive love, I had to give something, something tangible that wasn't just me. I couldn't give myself. Being myself wasn't enough to be seen. So that was just a belief I always had, and it just carried through my life. And and accompanied with that, it's a lot of extreme loneliness, feeling that, that you're never going to have joy, or that people are never going to really love you, or yeah, just that really, I guess.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I actually totally relate. What fascinating, I wonder if you have found this and all the work that you've done with people as well, is that I find that core belief, like I'm not lovable, to be quite universal actually, depressingly universal. Have you found that?
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's just when you speak to people, I mean, we all are riddled with insecurities. It's either we're not lovable or we're not enough. What's interesting though is that I think I do speak to a lot of people who clearly have this like rejection of themselves that stems from this childhood, but they have, there's no awareness around it yet. When you realize something and you're like, oh my God, of course I've been doing this behavior, I've been in this pattern because of this belief system, it seems really clear. But actually, for a lot of people, there is still no link. To the behavior and the patterns in their lives and the belief systems that they have. And so, really, all this work and anything that we can do to help others is to help people find that link so that they can understand themselves better and therefore break the cycles. Exactly. That's like to me,
0: there is nothing more exciting or powerful that we can do. If someone's listening, going, Yes, I need to do that, where does someone start? And I know it's all in the book, but. Tell us anyway, where does someone start with that? Wanting to make
1: particularly that link. Start with now. Like what are the things that you're going through now or the things that are bothering you now or things that are coming up? Taking this moment in present in time and then going back and seeing where else has it come up in your life? And like keep going back, 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 back until you can find that first time. And that might take you an hour or it might take you a week actually, I speak about this in the new book, Dive Deeper, because I manifest Dive Deeper, because in the new book, I talk much more about the inner healing journey required in your child work, with parenting. And I speak about this idea that memories, once you start healing, will come to you. They kind of like come up. It's like they're coming out to be processed. So once you start thinking about what's been going on, what are these patterns, you might start getting these random memories that pop up over time, and then you can start to put the pieces together like a jigsaw. And using journaling is a really great way to kind of do that as a self-exploratory exercise. I've found with memories as well that when... My
0: system feels safe enough, as in I might have learned how to ground myself better. Then the memories start to emerge. I think there needs to be like a safety and a groundedness before a lot of them come up. I've really noticed that. So I always think when I'm getting a period where I'm getting lots of memories, I think, God, I must feel really safe in my body and really grounded right now because they're all coming back. That's so nice. I love that. It's like a positive spin. (laughs) It's true though. It's definitely true. You're talking about doing almost like that emotional timeline of like going back. How does someone know whether they can sit there doing that, Roxy, maybe with your book or your new book and whether they need to get some professional support around that? Because I think it's really, it would be remiss of us not to talk about that.
1: How does someone know that line? I think that if it feels for you so overwhelming to do that, truly, I believe everybody should have external support within their means. There's so many different people out there that can help in so many different forms. But I think generally, there's only so much we can do just on our own. We can do a lot on our own, but sharing, voicing things out loud, even if it's with a friend or someone like a mentor or someone that isn't so close to you, but that can provide a safe space or a healer or a therapist. I think that really everybody will benefit from external support. And I think it's a really important investment in our own mental health and well-being. But I think that for some people whose traumas feel so overwhelming and you don't feel safe enough, you don't have that safety to start to undo. If you feel like you have that panic at the idea of even beginning to go back, because that's what happens. You think, I do not want to open that box. I cannot. And if you're having those thoughts at the beginning, then don't try to do it on your own if it feels too much. Go seek help and try and find the right fit for you. Yeah, I think that's really important, isn't it?
0: We've got this part where we're sort of looking back and we're trying to unearth those beliefs that have held us back. You talked about some of the core ones, not feeling enough, not feeling worthy. And this really links. I've been sort of into vision boarding and manifesting for a a long time now. And something that I notice is this question, is it okay for me to want what I want? And when I talk to other mothers about that, I feel like that is a really common question. It's like, is it okay for me to feel fire in my belly ambition about my work? And also I want to be a really present mother. And I know you talk about this in the book, that lots of people, when they first start to think about what do I want, they sort of dial it down a bit. Tell us about that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible safe non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash motherkind.
1: I think 100% everybody is entitled to want what they want and they should. And I think that as a mother, what are we teaching our children? Are we not supposed to teach them to be brave enough to go for what they want and to let them know that they deserve it? As we all know, I think children are not doing what we tell them. They do as we do, they will follow our lead. So if we can show up and show that we think we are worthy of abundance and success and love, they will adopt those belief systems because they're so perceptive. Like this silly example, I always try to get Wolfie to do baby yoga, okay? He can't be asked. He's like not interested. He does a downward dog leg up. That's about it. Anyway, so I tried to get him to do it. I try to teach him, tell him, nothing. Then he comes next to me and he starts doing planks, copying my sit-ups and he's copying all these workout moves that he's watching me do. But none of the ones that I'm telling him to do, none of the ones that I've tried to teach him, he's just been watching me and you don't realize they're watching you. And then he's doing them. And I thought, God, yeah, it's so true. He isn't listening to what I'm saying as much as he is watching what I'm doing and wanting to be like that. I think it's important for us and we should feel entitled to show our kids that we feel that we want to put ourselves first. And whilst also these are not things that are one or the other, we can put ourselves first, be ambitious, want what we want, and also be unbelievably nurturing, present, kind, loving parents. It's not one or the other. They come hand in hand. I think it's so true what you
0: say. I often talk about that. You know, children, they copy what we model. You know, 80% of parenting is modeling for sure. When I talk about this publicly, often lots of people will start to panic, right? So there'll be some people listening right now thinking, oh my gosh, like I am modeling maybe the opposite of what I want to be showing. And I'm wondering. Do you worry about that sometimes? Because clearly we're all so flawed and imperfect, you know, of course. Is that something that bothers you? Like, I know the power of modeling and, you know, showing whom I want to be. How do you reframe that for yourself? And then the second part of that question would be, what would you say to those people listening who are thinking, oh my gosh, like I'm modeling disempowerment, frustration, guilt, resentment.
1: On a personal level, Like, yeah, there are definitely things that, for example... I get really paranoid about him falling over and hurting himself. So I'm always there going, be careful, stop, move not too fast. And I really catch myself and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm passing on my anxieties onto him. Like I'm panicked about him falling over and I don't want him to then, you know, that's probably not good for him on some level. And so I'm very aware of myself doing that. The best thing I can do in that time is go, look, I'm aware that I'm doing it. I try to adjust where I can. But also, I'm not a perfect mom. No one is. As long as I really truly believe, as long as a child feels safe, heard, validated, that's the best we can do for them. Anything else is a bonus. I can't remember who it was that said, you just have to be a good enough parent. Like, that's it. Just be good enough. And I think that's so nice. It's like, you just have to be good enough. I can't always remind myself where I'm like... I don't know if this is like the right thing to say, but I always think, my God, like most people I know had a pretty fucked up childhood, or just you know, were parented in bizarre ways, and we turned out pretty all right. You know, we may be riddled with some insecurities, but we, we made it. We made it here. So, you know, we can't be doing that bad. But I think it's also important to recognize if we are displaying these. Things that maybe we don't want to model and not to judge ourselves for it, not to panic, but to use it as motivation to work on ourselves and to remind us of the importance of self-love, of healing, of growth. I remember my sister actually told me a really nice thing that she was like, you know, when I get angry at the kids, like sometimes she was like, oh, they frustrate me. They piss me off. I shout. She said, do you know what I do? I always make sure I go up and I take responsibility and I say, sorry, because I'm showing them that I'm not perfect either. And that it's okay to take responsibility and apologize for your actions. And I think that's so nice, you know, actually as a parent, it's quite a nice tool to go, Hey, sorry. I was just worried about this or that. And that's why I did this, but I'm feeling better now. And it wasn't about you or whatever it is, or, you know, so I think taking ownership for yourself and showing that to your kids is also really important. They call that rupture and repair
0: in the parenting world. Oh, amazing. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I had Mastin Kip on the podcast, you know him, and he said, love is made in the repair. And I thought that's really true. Like, you know, when you you repair or you make amends or that's when the love deepens, isn't it? So I think it's so beautiful. Well, it's because something that you said around stopping Wolfie, falling over, saying don't do that because the sort of 80s version of manifesting in the secret sort of gave this idea that if you think something is going to come into reality. And I think that puts a lot of mothers off this idea because it's like I... Have intrusive thoughts sometimes where I literally visualize my kids like getting squashed by a car or like it's horrible. It's like a horror show and a Technicolor horror show movie in my head. (laughs) I know they're just thoughts, they're just neurons firing. That's just the part of my body that feels overprotective. I know that that doesn't mean, of course, I'm going to somehow manifest that. But I think a lot of people worry about that because one thing I know for sure is that worry, anxiety, fear are bedded into motherhood they seem to go together. So can you reassure everyone around the power of thoughts and how it really works?
1: Yeah. By the way, I get it too, all the time. It's so annoying. And I was like, I didn't realize that that's what happened when you became a mother. And I've always been meaning to ask, everybody get this, that when you are a mother, you suddenly have the most horrible thoughts about something happening to your child. I guess that is just love and that care and that feeling that you just couldn't be without them. But we have over 60,000 thoughts a day. And if we manifested from our thoughts alone, basically everything would be in absolute chaos. We don't manifest from our thoughts. We manifest from our belief systems. So if we have like a thought, a worry, it's just a passing thought. It's like, you observe it, you can observe it and you can let it go. And that's that. It's not having any energetic shift or attracting something to you. You only would be doing that if you have a belief system and anyway, you can't manifest for other people. So you can't manifest something happening to your children in both good or bad ways. So do not worry. Those thoughts are normal. We don't manifest from our thoughts anyway, and we can't manifest for other people.
0: I think that's going to be very reassuring for people to hear. Also, I feel like whenever we just normalize like you just did, so thank you for sharing that you too get those, you know, intrusive thoughts. You know, there's a study came out that all mothers experience them on some level, some, of course, more extreme than others. But I feel like it's just so good to normalize that stuff, isn't it? It's just so good to normalize. Okay. So we've talked about sort of going back and you keep coming back. And what you just said, I want to underscore it because it's so powerful. We don't manifest from our thoughts. We manifest from our beliefs. And we've talked about the real blockers of those beliefs being in childhood, actually, in that core programming that often gets set up between zero to seven, doesn't it? How does someone start to reprogram those beliefs? Because again, that sort of 80s Louise Hay thing was like, if you say this in the mirror enough times, it will shift. That isn't my experience at all how do we actually shift those beliefs on a cellular level so that we can then manifest what we want
1: well actually louise hay does have a point and the power affirmations and mantras are incredibly powerful because a belief is a thought repeated so many times that it becomes so and our subconscious is always listening to the things that we're saying and it trusts it to be true So if you are saying to yourself, I am strong, I am powerful, I am enough, your subconscious goes, yep, that's true. And it will start to behave in response to that. And when you repeat it so many times, then it does become a belief. And when it becomes a belief, that's where you're manifesting it, you're changing that. And so because we have neuroplasticity, we can start to form new pathways through repeated thought and action. And so commitment to using mantras, doing positivity journals, doing gratitude practices, listening to self-love meditations every day. Actually, these things do have an impact on our belief systems because they all work to reprogram our subconscious. But they must be done and committed to and done every day. You can't do it once a week or once every now and then and then think that's enough. It's not. But that reprogramming is really important. And being like very vigilant with the way that we speak to ourselves every day, becoming managers of our thoughts. It's about understanding why we believe something, using, like we said, things like inner child work to reparent our younger selves, because that inner child still lives within all of us. So using that healing and finding any ways that you can to support a new belief system. If you want to support a belief system that you are worthy, it's about aligning your behaviors with self-worth. For example, in the way that you eat and drink and move and who you surround yourself with, how you keep promises to yourself, whatever, like in everything that we do, we're supporting different belief systems. So you both do it from a subconscious point of view and reprogramming your subconscious, but also You do it behaviorally by changing your behaviors to support a belief system and to strengthen it.
0: And I think that's what I meant when I said, you know, just saying it, because it was only when I actually started to put the behaviors in place, two things happened. One is that changes started happening because that's how it works, isn't it? When you start validating yourself more, but also I started to see a load of new limiting beliefs. So for example, when I first started setting boundaries might be saying, actually, I'm not going to come or no, I don't like the way you're talking to me. Loads of new beliefs would unearth themselves. Like, who are you to think that you can tell that person that they, and it's almost like this continuous ongoing cycle, isn't it? Of understanding the, how we feel about ourselves, knowing how we want to feel about ourselves. You know, I feel safe to set boundaries, for example, and then doing the behavior change and then almost starting again, isn't it? In that cycle. Totally. So what are some of the things on your manifesting journey that you have found the most challenging?
1: I really, truly do live and breathe my seven steps. And so for me, not that there haven't been challenging times, there are always ups and downs in life. The healing journey is ongoing and I'm always peeling new layers and thinking, oh my God, I thought I was fixed. And now I've got this other thing I need to do, like you say. But none of that to me is challenging in the way it used to be. For me, it's just a period of growth. It's like growing pains. I have such unwavering faith in manifesting in my seven steps, in my future, in the universe, that... Even challenges feel easier because I know they're leading me to growth and somewhere better. That's my experience, actually. You know, that's part of life, isn't it? Particularly if
0: you choose to get on a healing path. I mean, it's like there's going to be stuff, but it's thinking I have this sort of belief that every experience can be used for my growth. Yeah,
1: definitely. And you start to see your pain and experiences in a different way because they're all shedding light on what still needs to be processed. Or if I feel really upset because somebody spoke to me in a horrible way or whatever it is, I can actually look at that and go, wow, why is that so triggering for me? And what is that showing me? Because whatever it's showing you as a blog, actually, it's another thing I talk about in the new book is a lot about triggers and how we can use them to help us identify what's blocking us from our manifesting journeys.
0: What still triggers you? You talked about how other people talk to you, what still really gets under your skin today?
1: I think I still have very like, probably at work, I have really high standards. I really want things done efficiently and effectively. And I think I probably still get like a bit frustrated. I get frustrated when things go wrong or things aren't done to the standard I want. And I feel, why does that bother me so much? Why do I need everything to be to such a high level? And that is just perfectionism, isn't it? In just another way. And what drives perfectionism is a feeling that maybe we're not enough unless everything is perfect, unless we're at this particular standard, it's not enough. And so that's still understanding that it's enough whatever way it's done. I think for me, it's like I can still get really wrapped up in my external
0: perception being linked to who I as a person. So if we make a massive mistake at work, somehow that makes me flawed or not good enough. And of course, it doesn't mean that, but I can get really lost in that as well. I'm wondering, of all the work that you've done and your transformation the past three years, what's the lesson that you found the hardest to learn or apply?
1: I don't know which I've found the hardest, but the one that I think has been the most significant has been understanding that it's okay not to be liked by everyone. That for me has been the best lesson I've learned just to say, do you know what? There are going to be people that love my message, that love the way I communicate it, that it really inspires. And there are going to be just as many people that think I'm really annoying, that are going to miss interpret me who won't understand me and made me think that you know for example if i share a success something good that happens at work and i always post things on instagram because i want to inspire people and i also think it's okay to celebrate ourselves and i want to normalize that being like hey i did good i'm really proud of this thing and i think because so many of my followers have been on the journey with me. They do find it inspiring because they know what my life was like before. But for as many people who will read it or see what I post and think, God, that's really inspiring. There are probably going to be people that think, oh God, she's so up herself. I can't believe she's posting that. Like, oh, okay, whatever. We get it. you know. And I think that for me, being okay with going, you know what, there are some people that are just going to not know me or get me and they're going to actually dislike me. Some will even hate me. They will mock me, whatever it is behind my back. But to me, it really is so irrelevant. And I understand that it's just okay. It doesn't matter. It means nothing to me. It doesn't influence how I behave. I don't behave for those people. I don't make decisions based on what those people are going to think. I make decisions and behave and Line with what I want to think about myself and how I think it will support the people that are on my journey. It's so easy
0: to like people listening to your words will probably be thinking, yeah, of course, like of course there is. But actually, when you're in it and you are being criticised or people are taking the mickey, I've you know I've had the same with what I do. I think it's a massive growth edge for me to be able to let that go. I always manage to let it go at some point, but be able to let it go quicker. And I have to remember, someone said to me once that being misunderstood is part of having a mission. I think you're going to be misunderstood. And how quickly can you be okay with that is such a powerful one. I think it really links to motherhood as well, because judgment is so high in motherhood, isn't it? We all do things differently. There's not one single family or mother that has done things exactly the same ever across billions and billions And so this ability to accept that we're doing it our way and be misunderstood is so important, isn't it? Definitely, 100%. Have you had that with your mothering journey so far? Have you felt that insecurity? And I wanted to ask you about motherhood guilt as well because I think it's so all-pervasive. Have you experienced that or have you
1: generally felt quite confident and aligned? You know, I get mum guilt sometimes, of course. But generally, you know, I'm not claiming to be a perfect mum I'm just trying to be the best mom I can be for my family. And what works for my family is totally different from what works for someone else's family. But equally, I'm not worried about other people judging me as a mother because I don't judge other people as mothers. I really am very conscious never to pass judgment on someone else. And I think actually, one way around that we can all do it is we can often judge others. We assume others are judging us. When we can stop passing judgment on others and accept that everybody is doing it their own way, our minds are less focusing, less attention on the fear that we are being judged in turn. So I'm not judging what anyone else is doing. I don't judge myself for what I'm doing and I equally don't really worry if anyone's judging me for what I'm doing. I know that I'm being as good a mum to Wolf as I can be and that doesn't mean that I'm perfect, but I only have to look at Wolf and how happy and joyful he is to know that I'm doing something right. And when you experience those moments of guilt,
0: like we all do, what do you do with those? Do you let them go? Do you reframe them? Tell
1: us what you do with that. You know, and I always voice it. I voice it to Wade usually and I say, do you know what? I've been feeling really guilty that like when I've been writing books, for example, that's such an intense period that most weekends I'm writing. And so I really have less and less time with Wolfie And then, And I think, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not spending enough time with Wolfie and I feel really guilty about it. And then I just think, okay, well, you know what? If I'm feeling particularly guilty about one thing, I really make an effort that, do you know what? I'm going to clear my diary on that day and I'm just going to have like the most present mindful day with him because clearly my guilt is maybe, maybe is telling me something and maybe I do just need to, it's like a little signal to me and I know I will feel better then. But I also remember that as much as whatever I'm doing isn't just for me, it's always for him. So yeah, I try to do something about it. I don't judge it. And then I know that that feeling will pass. I think
0: the worst thing we can do is just let that feeling sort of gnaw away at us just when it becomes all pervasive. And then I guess it's like going back to what we've been talking about the whole time, which is the beliefs. Like what I'm loving you hearing is that I can see you have this really strong belief that you are a good enough mother for Wolf, that you are doing your best in this moment for him, that you are creating this amazing life for the both of you. And I feel like those core beliefs are so powerful In motherhood, because lots of people have the opposite. Like I'm not
1: doing it well enough and I'm failing. Yeah. And that's why I think But those core beliefs about how you are as a mother, are really just core beliefs about how you feel about yourself. If I hadn't done any work on myself, I would be feeling all of those things tenfold because how you feel about yourself just falls onto everything else. So if you're feeling about, about yourself as a mother, likelihood is you are still in so much pain. And I just want to like hug anyone that feels like that because I know how horrible it is. I know how debilitating that is. And if you are feeling that, it really isn't about you as a mother. It's about how you feel about yourself and you deserve to feel that you are enough and to feel worthy. This is your sign to begin that inward journey. Mm, That's really powerful. A powerful
0: place for me to ask you the last question, which is if you could give just one gift
1: to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Self-love, of course, because if we can love ourselves, then we have such a fuller experience of life, of motherhood. We have so much more love to give to those around us and we will see how much we already offer our children. And I think we would all be comforted if we could see
0: that for ourselves. Oh, it's beautiful. Thank you so much. I've absolutely love this
1: conversation. Thank you so much. It was so, so nice. And I learned so much from you too. So thank you.
0: So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the
1: guests I have on.